I suppose that one could argue that the most pivotal moment in his life came at a very young age. God said, stop mourning and get going. You need to take a heifer, your horn, and head out. And sometime later, Samuel strolled into a little town of Bethlehem. There he met the elders, he built an altar, and he invited Jesse and his boys to come to the sacrifice. Sometime later, the boys would show up. Jesse was there, and six of his sons were with him. And as Samuel saw them walking up, he had to think, wow, this is the moment. Surely, he thought, I've, I've hit the jackpot. So he, grab, he grabs his oil to anoint Eliab, the oldest, and God says, not yet. And Samuel says, but, but God, just look at him. And God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at what's on the inside. And maybe a little frustrated and possibly baffled, Samuel lowers the oil and waits for Abinadab to step forward. Now, if Eliab wasn't the one, Abinadab has to be the one. And again, God says, no, not him. Then walks up Shemaiah, then Nathaniel, then Radai, and then Ozem. Nope. Negative. Not him. Not quite. Samuel's confused. He looks at all the, the men who have passed by. He looks back up at Jesse and says, Is this all of your sons? And Samuel responded, Well, almost. My youngest son is out in the field doing his chores. He's, he's taking care of the sheep. Not knowing what to do, Samuel says, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. That must have been an awkward, long period where everyone was standing around waiting for the little guy to finally show up. But up walks David, the ruddy, young, handsome runt of the litter. And God said, he is the one. And that my friends, had his best day ever. Seriously, does it get any better than that? Is there any more life-changing moment in which you are chosen by God in front of your six older brothers? They got passed up. And you were chosen to be the king of the nation. Now, unless you're David, the answer is unequivocally no. That would be any one of our best days. But we're talking about David. 
You want a more life-changing moment? Well, just turn the page. Literally. The very next chapter, and the still young David is being sent on a snack run by his father. Jesse comes out to the field and says to David, who's tending the sheep, he says, I want you to get some grain and some bread and some cheese, and I want you to take it to the battlefield, go check on your brothers, give the cheese to the commander, and make sure everything is okay. Well, we really all know the story. David shows up to the front lines, but instead of seeing his brothers, he hears the voice of one really large dude. This nine foot six inch tall Philistine giant from Gath is heckling the Israelites. He's making fun of them, he's making fun of their king, and he's making fun of their God. David can't stand it, and he won't stand for it. So he starts to ask questions. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Well, right about that time, his brother shows up, and they began belittling and berating him. David, what are you doing here? This is war. This is not for boys. Shouldn't, be, shouldn't you be back out there with your pets, taking care of the little sheep? You need to go back home. But David ignores them and keeps asking why no one will fight the freak of nature on the other side of the Elah Valley. Word gets back to Saul who either out of stupidity or sheer desperation agrees to let the fate of the entire nation ride on the fighting skills of a small shepherd boy with zero combat experience. And if that didn't put doubt into the mind of Saul, surely watching David trying to fit into a grown man's armor was enough. If Saul didn't put a kibosh on this whole idea when David was stumbling around in his armor, then he has lost his mind. Well, he, he does lose his mind, but that's a little bit later on in the story. Instead, David decides that he doesn't need the armor. He grabs some stones, his sling, and literally runs toward the giant. A well-placed shot and a sword swing later, and David is holding up a head the size of his torso while the Philistine army runs in panic. What a day. Now that has got to be the most life-changing moment of David's life. He slays a giant. He impresses the king, and his brothers are there to see it once again. That's got to be the most pivotal day in his life. But it's not. Neither is the day when David is invited into the palace. Where he is asked to play this, the harp for the king. Nor is it the day when David is proclaimed as the greater warrior than Saul. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Surely, being elevated above the king has to be the greatest day ever. 
Or shouldn't the most pivotal day in David's life have been when he dodged a spear from the now crazy king and he fled for his life? You would think that would be the day that you would say, this is where my life changed. Or maybe when he pledged an oath to his best friend Jonathan and proved his loyalty. Maybe that should be his greatest day. Or how about when he spared the life of King Saul twice? If that doesn't speak of integrity, I don't know what does. That has to be the day that marks when David's life was changed. Or maybe the day his life was really changed was when he became king. I mean, for real. With the, with the crown and the thorn and the, uh, the throne and the palace. If that wasn't the day, then it had to be a few days later when the Philistines attacked Israel because they realized that David had become king. These Philistines, apparently they had some kind of grudge ever since the whole rock-throwing incident a few years prior. They wanted to go after David. Instead, David and the Israelites, because of God, would rout the Philistines and put an end to them. That would have to be the best day ever. Or maybe it was after that. And they decided that they would go get the Ark of the Covenant that had been with the Philistines. And now they were going to bring it back home to Jerusalem, to the city of David, where the Ark of the Covenant would rest where it was supposed to be after being gone for so long. That would have to be the most monumental day. Everyone was so excited. They got the band together, they got this fancy new cart, and they decided that they would bring home the Ark of the Covenant, except there was a little bit of an issue. The ox stumbled. The cart shifted. And the Ark began to slide. And Uzzah reached out his hand to steady it. And God's anger burned against the people because they hadn't listened to him and transported the ark the way he asked them to. And as a result, Uzzah died right there. Israel was afraid and King David was furious. And the ark didn't go home. Instead, they renamed the place Perez Uzzah. And they left the ark at the house of Obed-Edom. Fast forward a few more days. And Obed-Edom has, everything that he's done has turned out well. And so David decides that it's now time to go get the ark. But this time they're going to do it the right way. There's celebrations, there's singings, there's sacrifices. There was some dancing. It was a really good day when the ark actually made it back. There was a small incident that day that involved a linen ephod and, and David dancing before the Lord with all of his might. So much so that his wife, Michael, confronted him about it later and told him how shameful he was for doing that. That might have been the most life-changing moment of Michael's life. 
but it wasn't for David. Maybe the most pivotal time was when kings go off to war. And David stayed home. And David was walking along the rooftop and surely this was the most pivotal moment in his life. And he looked down and saw the most beautiful woman bathing and he called her up and he slept with her. And then he sent her back home. Boy, if that didn't seem like a really big day then, it surely did. A few months later when David learned that Bathsheba was pregnant. Boy, that's a life-changing moment, isn't it? I mean, he's the king. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. But the problem is Bathsheba is, is married. And not just to any old schmuck. Bathsheba is married to Uriah. Uriah, one of David's 70 mighty men. Some of his most trusted men were in that group. These men had vowed to protect David. And David knew he was in trouble. And so he called Uriah home. And he said, go home and be with your wife. And that's when David learned that Uriah had more integrity in his big toe than David had displayed in his whole body. And so he brought Uriah in for a second night, and this time he got him drunk and sent him back home. But again, Uriah refused to go into the house. He slept outside because he said, if my men are out there fighting and they can't be with their loved ones, I won't do it either. And so maybe the most pivotal moment in David's life came when he decided to put Uriah up at the very front in the most fierce part of the fighting. And after they had made a push forward, he would have everyone else fall back and Uriah would die by the sword. It's so crazy to think that Uriah would pledge his life. He would give his life for King David. And instead, David would say, I'm going to take your life. To cover my sin and hide adultery that I had with your wife. Maybe that was the most pivotal moment in the life of David. But then walks in Nathan. And Nathan is going to tell David a story. Nathan is a prophet. And he tells this story. He says, David, there once were these, these two men. One of them was poor. The other was very wealthy. And the wealthy man, he had lots and lots of sheep and lots of pastures. But the poor man, he had but one baby ewe. One little lamb that he raised from birth. This little sheep ate from his hand and drank from his cup and would fall asleep in the arms of this poor man. 
And one day a visitor was coming through to see the wealthy man. And the wealthy man, instead of taking one of his thousands of sheep, decided he would hop the fence and go take that one baby lamb that belonged to the poor man. And he slaughtered it. And he cooked it. And he shared it with his visitor. And before Nathan could finish the story, David burned with anger. And he said, that man must pay. You see, David would not allow such an injustice. But I want to note, it wasn't the anger that changed his life. It was those four words he would hear after that. You see, it wasn't flying stones, fancy thrones, or even a closet full of bones. It was one conversation. It was one sentence. No giant. No weapons. No sprawling palaces or beautiful brides. The watershed moment, the most pivotal time in the life of King David was after he heard those four words. You are the man. I think David could look back on his life through the highs and the lows, through the ups and downs, whether it was sitting on a throne or running from it. I think you could look back and, and the, the key moment of David's life took place when his heart was broken. I think one thing we all love and admire about David is that he never did anything halfway. David fought with all of his strength. He sang with all of his soul. He praised with all of his spirit. He danced with all of his might. And he confessed with all of his heart. David was completely changed when he experienced the words that we read in Psalm 51. I want to read a portion of that this morning from the voice. Look on me with a heart of mercy, O God, according to your generous love. According to your great compassion, wipe out every consequence of my shameful crimes. Thoroughly wash me inside and out of all my crooked deeds. Cleanse me from my sin. For I am fully aware of all the wrong that I've done, and my guilt is there. It's staring me right in the face. It was against you and only you that I sinned, for I have done what you say is wrong, and I did it right before your eyes. So when you speak, you are right. When you judge, your judgment, judgments are pure and true. For I was guilty from the day I was born, a sinner from the time my mother became pregnant with me. But still, you long to enthrone truth throughout my being. In unseen places deep within me, you show me wisdom. Cleanse me of my wickedness with hyssop, and I will be clean. 
Wash me, God, and I will be whiter than snow. Help me hear joy and happiness as my accompaniment. So my bones, which you have broken, will dance with delight instead. Cover your face so you won't see my sin. And erase my guilt from the record. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore within me a sense of being brand new. Do not throw me away from your holy presence. And do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Give back to me the deep delight of being saved by you. Let your willing spirit sustain me. If you do, I promise to teach rebels your ways and help sinners find their way back to you. Free me from the guilt of murder, of shedding a man's blood, O God who saves me. Now my tongue which was used to destroy will be used to sing with deep delight of how right and just you are. O Lord, pry open my lips that this mouth will sing joyfully of your greatness. I would surrender my dearest possessions or destroy all that I prize to prove my regret, but you don't take pleasure in sacrifices or burnt offerings. What sacrifice can I offer you is my broken spirit. Because a broken spirit, O oh God, a heart that honestly regrets the past, you won't detest. There's so many stories about David that we love to read and think about. But the one that makes us a little uncomfortable is this one right here. Because here David is. It's one thing to see him fight in such a mighty way and sing in such a mighty way and lead in such a mighty way. But, but what about when he confesses? The way that he does. The words of Psalm 51 can only happen when it comes from a broken heart. I find it so interesting that the king who did everything to hide his sin is now the man bearing it before the people. Remember, the Psalms weren't a secret diary that was to be hidden, they were to be shared openly publicly David wrote about his sin he put it to music he taught it to others and he basically led the entire nation in a song about his sin and his brokenness and his shame it's what really changed his life and it's what really changes ours too I want to go back just to the moment when Nathan was telling David the story about the two different men who had the, the sheep and how the rich one came and took the little lamb from the poor man and David's emotion was that of anger but I want you to know I want you to be reminded that it wasn't Anger that changed David's life. Sometimes we think that. Sometimes we think getting angry is the answer. I'm right there with you. I don't like what's going on outside of these walls. I'm tired of reading social media 
that is all about division and hatred. I'm so tired of reading in the newspaper about death and violence taking place over and over again. I'm tired of the fact that marriage is no longer an institution that we uphold, but it's something that's thrown away along with the little babies. I'm tired of hearing this, and my response wants to be that of anger, of righteous indignation. Why would this happen, and how can we go after the other party for allowing it to happen? But that's not what changes lives. That's not what shows Jesus. God says, if I want a people who will change the world, they don't need to go around being angry and pointing fingers and throwing stones. I need a people whose heart will break. Their heart must break. There were some accusations, maybe even some allegations. There were some murmuring going on last Sunday, especially after the sermon. You know, it, it never works out the way I think it's going to. I put my kid in the freezer for a few minutes. It wasn't that bad. And, and the story is now being told that I literally locked him up in a freezer overnight. That, that, none of that happened, right? And last week, I may have topped it. I asked the, the, the healthy, bright, super active Kip to get on a little, uh, a little tricycle, not a tricycle, I've lost the razor is what we call it at home and kick around for a few minutes. That kid, he doesn't stop going anywhere, but he spends about 10 minutes in an air conditioned room going around in a circle. And I got people livid. They're mad at me. They're like, that shouldn't happen. He should not be doing that. He could get hurt. And, and, and like everybody's like, and you know what? Everybody's thinking, we've got to do something to help him. That's not right. Right, Carolyn? Right, Lynn? I, got, I heard words. When Lynn and Carolyn come up to you afterwards and say, that ain't right, you oh man, I'm in trouble now. You shouldn't make him run around in circles like that. He could get a cramp. He could get tired. He could have been dehydrated. Right? I just, I, I love that you're filled with emotion and I love that you care for a little kid. As a church, there are people that are outside and they are doing circles. But they're doing circles in a way that is painful and it's never ending and it's not 70 degrees and smooth. They are, it is rocky and they're falling and they're bleeding and the sun's coming down on them and the only place they're headed is to hell. And we have two choices. We can say they deserve that and get angry. Or our heart can break because there are people out there who are lost and they're hurting. And maybe they even want to make it to the far side, but they just are struggling. And I just pray that we will be like David. That this week our heart will break when we read about these stories. 
when we hear about new laws being made, that instead of thinking about how we can get angry, instead we can just say, God, please move us with compassion to love the people that you love too. May our hearts be broken this morning. I want you to know if you're in a difficult place in your life, God's response to you is not that of anger. More so it's that He is heartbroken. And He calls you to come back to Him. And so this morning as we sing this song of invitation, I want to invite you to come to God with a broken heart and allow Him to change you. Please come as we stand and sing.